0: friends, we uh, believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you know what? Let me say that again. We believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised to everlasting existence. We believe that just over 2,000 years ago in a chamber that was cut out of a rock and was sealed with a stone that a dead body lay. Don't we? We believe that. We believe that a lifeless corpse was there. One that bore all the hallmarks of the most brutal and violent execution. That corpse lying there We believe that all of a sudden, things changed. Don't we? We we believe that that lifeless corpse suddenly, that previously lifeless corpse, moved. We believe that his chest began to inflate and deflate as breath returned to his lungs. We believe that this previously lifeless person, he stood up! He walked! He moved out of the tomb, we believe, in the resurrection to life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean for you and for me this morning? I mean, surely you see uh, the question, do you? I mean, yes, Jesus lives. We believe this. He is at the right hand of the Father. What are the implications of that for for us, at London City Presbyterian Church this morning? Well, it is that theme that Paul turns to at this moment in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and I believe this: that as we dig into what he says here, we are going to see the consequences of Jesus' resurrection. We are going to see the implications of Easter, not just for today, but for tomorrow. The implications of Jesus' resurrection for our present lives. But also, this is exciting, we will see the implications of Jesus' resurrection for our lives to come. Three things this morning. Three points from this portion of Scripture. First of all, Friends, we see here the inevitability of our resurrection from the dead. Isn't that wonderful already? We see here the inevitability of our resurrection from the dead. Okay, now, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you and I are just launching ourselves into first corinthians chapter 15 aren't we from nowhere suddenly we're in the middle of first corinthians chapter 15 so what has been happening here well if you know this book i think most of us probably know first corinthians rather well You know, if you know this book, that up until this point, Paul has kind of been addressing a problem in the church in this place called Corinth. A problem. You see, these Corinthian believers are what we might call, here's a technical term, pneumatists. So they have adopted this idea, this erroneous idea, that the body, the flesh and blood is wrong and it's evil. Okay, now more importantly... As a consequence of that, they believe that therefore there was no need for or no such thing as a future bodily resurrection of the people of God's life. Now, everyone with me thus far? So the Corinthian church are saying, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but we're not going to rise one day from the grave. And this is something... That Paul has been battling against. He's been combating this. He's been saying, you are wrong on this. So this is the background. So what is what does Paul do now? What, and This suddenly kind of changes a little bit. The dynamic changes here, right now in verse 20. It's more upbeat. What Paul does now is show some really positive implications of jesus resurrection so what 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 are these positive implications well tell you what let's look at it together you got your bible open look with me to verse 20 would you please you got it verse 20 he says but in fact christ has been raised from the dead we could spend a thousand years looking at that could we not that phrase but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead but actually I want you to notice how Jesus how Paul rather describes Jesus' resurrection next do you see the term that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep now you and and me right now we've got to be We've got to be precise here. Now, we have to be accurate. We've got to be careful with this. Because we're so familiar with that idea of first fruits that I tell you what could happen, you and I just now could miss actually the emphasis of what Paul is saying here. Because you think about this with me. What are the first fruits, biblically speaking? What do we think about? The first fruits, what were they? They were the first of the harvest. Weren't they? The first produce. Weren't they? They were the first products of the crop. Now, if you know your Bible, you know what the people of God did. They used to take the first fruits and they would take them into the temple, wouldn't they? They would give them to the priest. And it's a way of consecrating the harvest to God. You can see the idea, can't you? Like taking in the first fruits, the first product, and it's a gift. Give the best to God. Give the first to God. Everyone? Yes, is that right? Wrong. Wrong. that happened but that is not Paul's emphasis here in 1st Corinthians this is what Paul is saying Paul is saying first fruits these are the first listen to the words these are the first of an inevitable harvest he's saying the first fruits here in 1st Corinthians this is the first of a guaranteed and coming crop and you might look at me just now and say, he's making that up. Where's he getting this idea from? Well, Paul uses first fruits in exactly that way in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians 16. It's marvelous. Because there he speaks of a family and they're a new family of converts. The family of Stephanus. And do you know what he says? He says that this new family are the first fruits in that region. So do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that they are, this family, a pledge from God. They are a guarantee from God. This family, new converts, they are the first of an inevitable harvest of new believers that are coming in that region, in that place. Do you see it? Do you see it? If you do, turn back to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and surely hear, Christian friends, hear what God is saying to you this morning. What is Christ's resurrection but a first fruit? You today, if you are in Christ, you can know for sure and with certainty that you will rise again. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection was a pledge to you from God. It was a guarantee to us that there is an inevitable harvest of resurrected lives to come now i love this you can maybe imagine what uh, life is like for a minister for a preacher at this time of year when it gets to easter can you you know how we do it we're working through a series always aren't we lcpc and then comes easter so what do we do We take a break from our series and we look at the theme of resurrection. No surprise there. That's how we roll. Inevitably that's what's going to happen. So what it is like for ministers. Like I've spent the last couple of weeks trying, praying, to establish where does God want me to preach from? For Easter morning the resurrection we're and and praying through and trying to think what is it that God is going to say to you and to me this morning do you understand you see what that's like and isn't it marvellous now because you get it I get it what does God want to say to you Christian friend this morning what does he want you to know he wants you to know for certain you're going to live and you're going to live. There's areas that we could go with the resurrection theme. and The theme of Christ's resurrection. God wants you today to know that you are going to live after you die. That's special. Isn't it? Do you know what? It gets better. <laughs> because here, what Paul does is build on this theme. So I would again ask you to look to your Bible. Look to verse 21 and 22. I'm going to read it. So follow it with me. Verse 21, 22. He says this for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead keep reading please think about the next bit as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive and Christ now what have I just said to you a moment ago I've said that you and I can be so familiar with kind of words and ideas and phrases in the Bible that we can really very easily miss the emphasis. And I'm standing here before you and I'm saying that that is a real danger when we think of Adam and Christ. Now like when Paul mentions to us Adam and Christ, where do we go? What do you think normally? We so often think that Paul is talking about the means of salvation when he's talking about Adam and Christ. Don't we think like that? How do we die? It's Adam. But how shall we live again? Like, what? How do, how do we get salvation? Christ. And I want you to understand that that is not what Paul is saying at this point in 1 Corinthians. And listen to me. He is not here explaining salvation. Do you know what he's doing? He's reinforcing that glorious point that he has just made. He is not explaining salvation to you. This is what he's doing. He's saying both of these men's actions, Adam's actions and Christ's actions, they had, listen to the words, inevitable consequences. These actions, Adam, Christ, guaranteed effects. And I think if you would just gaze upon Adam for a moment this morning, you will understand exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm going to engage the Americans. In our audience, in our congregation just now, for a moment. You can help me with us, please. There's a number of you here today. Because you know, don't you, the words of that quote that's very often attributed to Benjamin Franklin. You know the quote, don't you? I'll paraphrase it. What did he say? He said that the only sure things, the only two things that are sure in this life are, yeah, you know it, don't you? Death and taxes well isn't he right in the first one I mean what is the inevitable consequence of Adam's sin what is guaranteed universally because of Adam's fall we know the answer the answer is that all of us in here shall one day face death That should Christ not return you and and, and me and everyone in here, we're going to die. You understand it's an inevitable consequence of Adam's sin. And that might seem depressing to you just now, does it? Only until you recognize the full scope of Paul's argument. Because what's he saying here? He's saying that just as there are inevitable consequences to Adam's sin, so... There are inevitable consequences to the resurrection, to life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his point. We look at the empty tomb. What do we know? What's the guaranteed effect? That as God the Father has raised his son to life, so you in Christ shall live. It is guaranteed. It is inevitable. And if you are a Christian in here this Easter morning, doesn't that nourish your soul? Like, doesn't it warm your heart? Doesn't it move you to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? We're going to live again. You leaving your grave isn't me pipe dreaming. This isn't tea dreaming. It is certain and it is true and it is real. And I ask you, Christian friend, to remember it. At the crucial and critical times of your life. As you speak to the doctor and the doctor says to you, it's terminal. And there is nothing that we can do. Remember this. And as the Christians that you love. As they face illness and they pass away and they die. You remember this. And as you lie in your hospital bed, and that day will come when you feel hopeless and you feel helpless and you feel death approaching. Do remember what God is declaring to you in First Corinthians chapter five, because your redeemer lives. You also shall one day rise from the grave, or as Paul says here, what does he say? As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all in him, what are the two words? We shall be made alive. Isn't it marvelous, friends? There is an inevitability to our resurrection, to life. But as we move on, secondly, we see here the necessity of our resurrection from the dead. Our inevitability, but the necessity of our resurrection. So do you see the logic of the argument? We've said that if we are in Christ, we will rise. Moving now to the fact that if we are in Christ Jesus, we must rise from the dead. We will rise, but we must also Uh, Right, so how do we see that here? Well, at this point in the chapter, Paul is kind of turning his head, I think. He turns his head and he looks forward. And he sets his gaze, sets his eyes on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ shall return from glory to heaven. He is looking at the parousia, the final day. He notes a couple of things about that final day. First of all, he speaks about the order of events on that final day. Friends, look at verse twenty-three, please. If your Bibles are open, verse twenty-three. He says this. I remember speaking about the last day, and he says, "But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then." At his coming those who belong to him I kind of wish that Abby Haffenden was here this morning she, she's our army girl she could help us with this because what you've got in front of you just now is a, a, a military metaphor that, that when he says each in his own order it is the idea of rank so do you see the pictures before you here it's a picture of an army officer and he gets up at the crack of dawn. These boys, did get up early, don't they? So this army officer gets up at the crack of dawn and he polishes his shoes and he gets his uniform all right and he gets his hat on. What does he do then? He goes to the barracks and all the soldiers are asleep. Hammers on the door, goes in and he wakes up the masses and he gets them ready for action. You see the military picture before you? And do you see what Paul is saying about order on the last day? Our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, our commander in salvation, he has already awoken. He is risen. And what is going to happen when he comes? What happens on the last day? You and I, the rank and file of God that we shall on that moment, we too shall be awoken. On that last day, we shall arise. He speaks of the order on the last day, but then what he does is speak of the details of the last day. And I hope you know this feeling, do you? We've talked about this once before, I think. You'll permit me to do it again. You know that feeling, Christian friend, when you're reading God's words, perhaps... Uh, early in the morning you get up and you read scripture and what happens? A phrase just jumps out at you. Have you had that before? where you A phrase that you've never really noticed but you read it and it becomes incredibly vivid. You know that idea that just you can't shake the phrase. It gets its teeth into you. Have you had that? I hope you've had that before. I had that this week afraid here that really shoot me and will not let me go and you see it at the beginning of verse 24 because it's simple but consider it Paul is talking of the resurrection and he is talking of exalted things and then he says this and then comes the end and you see now what he's looking at Do you see this solemnity and the gravity of this? He's talking about the final moment. Now he's talking about that second where the final whistle goes, right? And it's the final whistle on life on this earth, that very second where the whistle goes on life on earth as we know it. And what does he say? Do you know what he says? He says that at that second, when Christ returns in the sky, there's going to be a presentation that happens. That the Son of God is going to deliver over his kingdom to God the Father. Then, verse 28, what happens? Now listen to me. All things at that moment, all things, even including the Son of God, functionally speaking, will come under subjection of God the Father. One writer says this, that at that moment of then on, the triune God in all three persons shall stand supreme and he will stand amid glorified humanity and we shall stand all in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be at that very moment this unchallenged, unqualified, unimaginable peace for the children of God. And that's exalted. and it's marvellous. to think that that is ahead. But here, Paul wants you to see how it happened. So I'm going to ask you to do this, and I ask the parents to do this. Show the boys and girls verses 25 and 26. Everyone, let's look at it. How does this great pacification of the created order come about? What does it say? Verse 25, that Christ will put all enemies under his feet. Now we're getting to the point, verse 26, that the last enemy, death, at that moment will to be destroyed. Do you see, friends, the point that Paul's making? That the gospel will only be seen to be true. That the glory of God will only be revealed if what happens? If you and me rise from the dead. And do you follow the logic of it? That unless the church of the Lord Jesus Christ rise to everlasting life, unless you are taken out of your grave, do you see that death is not defeated? Like unless you and I are raised up, then there is still an enemy prowling around. That unless, in the final day, all of the church triumphant is raised up, then God is not legitimately recognised as sovereign and true. Friends, the omnipotence of God necessitates that one day you shall rise. The death must be defeated for the glory of God to be revealed to all kind. And I for once stand before you and I'm enthused, I'm excited, I rejoice that the nature of God demands the resurrection of His people. Friend, if you are a Christian this morning, and you are so spiritually decaying and numb today that you are doubting life after death. Do you see in First Corinthians what you must do today? If you doubt this, you need to go to God. You need to gaze on Yahweh with the eyes of faith. You need to go to His Word. You need to pray concertedly. You need to worship Him. Why? Because the greatest assurance you will ever have that you will one day rise, that assurance comes as you gaze on the character and the nature of your God. Isn't it reason for praise this morning? (laughs) Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we will live. But because of the final consummation of all things, we must live so we see the inevitability of our resurrection we see the necessity of our resurrection from the dead and then the third and the final thing is the practicalities the practicalities of our resurrection from the dead now if you have worshipped or been worshipping with us Over the last uh, number of weeks, you'll probably remember there's been this kind of repeated theme that we've had a few times at LCPC. So a number of times recently, I've said that sermons, to be biblical, really should have some practical application. Yes, it's not a revolutionary idea. The idea that a sermon should have teaching about how we live to honour the Lord God. Practical application. Do you know what I think the Apostle Paul Would be okay with that theme. Because that's what he does here. You understand what I'm saying? That from speaking of the future implications of Jesus resurrection, he ends here talking about the present implications of the fact that you shall one day be raised. And he all he does is quite briefly mention three practical applications for Christians for the people of God and I'm just going to follow him. So what's the first? We see the effect of our resurrection on the sacraments, on our sacraments. So have a look at verse 29. Verse 29. So his point is, we're going to rise. We're going to rise. Christ is risen. We're going to rise. Otherwise, now do you see it? What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of dead if the dead are not raised at all why are people being baptized on their behalf if you know what that verse means (laughs) could you please speak to me after the service and tell me what that verse means because I am not embarrassed to tell you that I don't know exactly what is meant by that verse I spoke to Brad about it during the week and we were noting that there are over 40 different interpretations of that verse and none of them are particularly convincing so we don't know what that exactly means but the general gist is clear, this church in Corinth seems to have believed in baptism by proxy so they believed that even if a person was dead think about this, even if a person was dead, you could be baptized on their behalf and bring them spiritual blessing. Okay, do you see what they're doing? They were stripping baptism of its significance and of its meaning and of its all of its beauty. And do you see what Paul is doing there? He's saying, don't you see how mad that is? Don't you see how illogical it is? On one hand you're saying there's no resurrection in a few, no bodily resurrection yet. You're getting baptized for the benefit of people who are dead. He said it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's illogical. It's madness. But if you turn it on your head, do you see what we have here? Friends, our sacraments are beautiful. Baptism is key. Do you know later on we can baptize Rachel in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Why can we do that? Because God is King. and Because the Gospel is true and because the covenant community of the Lord Jesus Christ shall one day rise from the dead. So we see the effect of our resurrection and the sacraments. Then I said three, two, we see the effect of the resurrection on our suffering. And you see that in verse 30 and 31, do you? Verse 30 and 31. Paul here speaks of being in danger. And there are no prizes for guessing to what he refers. We know that the Apostle Paul has gone through such trauma and trouble. Shipwrecks, friends. Is that right? Beatings. He's gone to the the point of death. And you see his logic here, do you? He's saying, if there is no bodily resurrection, what was the point? Why have I gone through all of this if I am not to be raised in the end? But what does the apostle know to be true? He knows that these troubles he's faced, and all of the suffering and all the persecution, it is one, it is passing, and two, it is worth it. Because one day he will be raised and one day he shall see Jesus. And if you are this morning in suffering, if you are persecuted, if you are oppressed because of the gospel, you cling to this, what does Paul say elsewhere, that our present sufferings, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed in us. And then the last of the practical applications The effect of our resurrection on our sanctification. Would you agree with your minister that the end of this portion of scripture is a little bit strange? Do you agree with me? From speaking of the resurrection and these glorious and exalted truths, suddenly Paul is exhorting the Corinthian believers to holiness. At like one minute, he's talking about the resurrection to life. The next minute, he's saying, you stop your drunkenness. Stop your immorality. As it seems strange to us, maybe you see what he's saying. Hence, God here is exhorting you, Christian brother, Christian sister, exhorting you to holiness because of what lies ahead of you that we must seek to glorify God in this present life. Why? Oh, praise Him, because our future life will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. We must seek to live for Him now, because God is going to do a marvelous thing. He is going to raise us from the dead. And you might look at me and you might accuse me, of skimming over these practical applications and, and you'd be right and I could spend years talking about them. But I wanted to get here when we end what I think is the saddest thing that I will ever say to you in a sense. The saddest and most difficult theme. You answer me this. Who is it that shall on that final day be raised to everlasting life? Is it everyone? Everyone in here, will we all be raised to everlasting life? Listen to me, the benefits of Christ's saving resurrection are applied only to those who are in Christ by repentance and belief. The benefits of Christ's saving resurrection applied only to those who are in Him. Do you see why it's sad? Do you see what it means for you if you are not a Christian this morning? Let me say this to you. You will one day rise, but you will rise to condemnation. You will on that last day rise, but you will rise in fear. You will rise to a terror that you have never known before and an anguish and a dread because on that day you will rise to face the almighty God that you have spent your present life rejecting. And so this morning I I do urge you I plead with you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ to see that Easter is not about eggs and all the peripheral guff that goes along with Easter, but to see that it is about a raised up, resurrected Savior and to come to him for forgiveness and salvation and everlasting life. And if you do that... Do you know what? You, you come to this family. You come to the people of God. And you join the church as we embrace one solitary verse as we leave. You ready for it? Romans 8 verse 11. Christian friends, what is true? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. He who raised Christ will also give life to your mortal bodies. Isn't it reason for praise and worship this morning, friends? Don't you agree? We will rise. We have to rise for the glory of God. And how? How? All because just over 2,000 years ago in that tomb outside Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ, he defeated death, friend. He moved, he walked, he stood, he lives. He is the eternal king of kings. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your immeasurable and outstanding goodness. We thank you that we, your people, are set to receive great blessing, all undeserved. We do praise you, O Lord, our God, that salvation begins at your door. That you are the God who raises up people to eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so how we pray, Lord God, that those here outside of your kingdom, that you would be good to them, Lord. That you would be merciful. That you would show them the glory of Christ Jesus. And the glory of the gospel of God. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.